0: Hello, Hello. and welcome to to Philosophy Philosophy Talk, Talk. the program that questions questions everything. everything. except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm I'm Ken Ken Taylor. Taylor. We're coming
1: coming to you you from the studios of KALW 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 in San Francisco. Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, Today, the morality morality of of food. food. The morality of food. Come on, Ken. Food? I mean, we're the program that questions everything, but do we have to question food? I mean, people are going to think... The philosophy of food. Food is food. We eat it. We need it. End of story. Oh, contraire, John. The topic of food is fraught with
0: philosophical implications. What people eat says a lot about their approach to life, their conception of the place of humans in the cosmos, and their basic values. Well, tell me more. Well, I mean, think about the simple question of, let's start with where you get your food. Most people don't grow their very much of their own food, so you go to the supermarket. But which supermarket? You can go to a market like Whole Foods or some other such store where you can get organic, chemical-free food and eggs from supposedly free-range chickens. Or you can go to Safeway with lower prices to be sure, but more chemicals and eggs from chicken raised in small cages. Your choice of supermarket says a lot about you.
1: Well, I can get into this, I guess. I mean, you go to a restaurant, you order beef, which tastes good, but implicates you in the effects of steer flatulence on global warming, wanton use of hormones, stinky feedlots, and other inhumane practices. Do you order veal, which which implicates you in animal torture? Do you order beef? Or do you avoid beef and order fish? But which fish? Salmon from the sea, which is overfished. Salmon from farms, which pollute. Catfish from sustainable farms, where the catfish are typically harvested by electrifying a whole pond and gathering the electrocuted carcasses with a rake. And and there's
0: more, John. There's even more. I mean, do you eat food to enjoy it, or is food for you just a, a bundle of nutrients? Is eating good food an intrinsic value, an end in itself, or just a means to
1: an end, you know, staying alive? You know, Ken, it sounds like by the end of this program, I'm going to be a vegetarian or, or, or God forbid, a vegan. Well, even well, that's, even that's yeah. not so
0: simple, John. I mean, most of the species we eat have co-evolved with us and are, in, are dependent on us. Is it better for chickens to raise them humanely, kill them painlessly, and eat them... Or release them to the mercy of coyotes and watch the species die out? And, and, and do you consider just the, the lives of currently existing chickens? Or do you care about all the potential chickens that will have no life at all if you, if you go vegan?
1: Ken, I'm getting depressed. We're supposed to question everything, but I, I kind of wish we'd taken a pass on food.
0: Well, John, luckily we won't have to. We won't be left to our own devices on this one. Our guest, Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and uh, In Defense of Food, he's he's an expert on this stuff. He's thought about the topic of food inside and out, and seems to have come up with a philosophy that allows
1: him both to enjoy food and at the same time to feel good about himself. Uh, can you guarantee me he's not going to tell me I need to subsist on carrots and lettuce for the rest of my life? Well, let's wait and
0: see what he says. I've, I'm not going to. I'm not going to anticipate that. But here's the structure of our show. We'll start by getting a sense of how food habits have changed over the years, especially recent
1: years. Then we're going to move on to to see how the way we eat reflects our obligations to animals, the environment, and other people.
0: And finally, we'll press Michael Pollan for his suggestions about how we can eat healthfully, uh, ethically, and also enjoyably.
1: First, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, follows the latest food fad. She files this report.
2: In 2007, the new Oxford American Dictionary announced their word of the year, locavore, someone who only eats food grown within a 100-mile radius.
3: Here we have our tomato plants. We're growing five different kinds of tomatoes.
2: Margot True walks through the urban garden behind her office at Sunset Magazine.
3: And here are what I think is the best cherry tomato on the planet, sun gold. Here taste one. It actually (laughs) fell off. It's so right.
2: This editor believes fresh local products are a more nutritious and socially responsible way to eat. So she decided to take the locavore movement to the next level.
3: Some of us were wandering around the campus one day. And I noticed that we had figs growing, and we had a kumquat tree, a grapefruit tree. We had all this food already here, just various and sundry. And I thought, why don't we just cut to the chase and do a one-block diet?
2: Instead of eating food grown within a hundred-mile radius, True designed a one-block feast, where all the food comes from an area the size of a small backyard. Though they raise their own honeybees and egg-laying chickens, the staff hit certain limits
3: especially when it came to the wine. We didn't realize that we would have to get 600 pounds of grapes. (laughs) So that was another one of our imports. We went to a local vineyard, a winery, and we picked 600 pounds of Syrah, and we brought it back to Sunset, and we stomped it with our feet in the parking lot. Editors became
2: beekeepers, fact-checkers became chicken farmers, Everyone had a job making the feast happen.
3: We've really started to feel a little bit like an old-fashioned village, all sort of coming together to produce something. And it's been um, just humbling to realize that none of this is new. To
4: me, there's no doubt that the whole connection to your food, the more that you're involved with the food earlier on, the more sad, like deeply satisfying it is to eat it.
2: Molly Watson writes on local food and designed many of the recipes for the one-block feast. Watson says local food, grown by yourself or from a farmer's market, encourages people to cook for themselves.
4: Food tastes better when it's made with like a lot of good intention. And when you cook, you do put something of yourself into the food. There's something I think that people crave in homemade food, and I do think it is that there's a level of intentionality in its preparation that comes across.
3: When we were eating it, we just felt the pleasure of it. We literally felt virtuous. You know, it wasn't um, an abstract. It was palpable, actually.
2: Sunset Magazine's Margot True says the feeling of eating food you've made from scratch can change your sense of self.
3: The kinds of work that we've been doing associated with this One Block Feast project, all of it is real. Gardening is real. Sitting down to eat with other people is real, and especially when it's food that you've grown. It's just quiet and slow and So much of it is unspoken too, in this super verbal culture that we have, it's so lovely to feel something larger that you might not even want to articulate.
2: For Molly Watson, the main motivation for eating local food, whether from the grocery store or from your backyard, is that the food tastes better. Social responsibility is just icing on the cake.
4: If you get people acting that way, and they're eating really what the best tasting stuff is, So often that ends up being the more socially responsible, the more environmentally responsible, the more politically responsible. And that's what's going to get people's attention and keep them motivated and keep them eating that way, is that the food in the first place is really delicious.
2: For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin.
0: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.